Hi, Harry here in the hot seat for the first time. We're gonna be doing some Q&A sessions for our supporters on Patreon. Our ace marketing producer, Kalena Tano, has collected a bunch of questions for me. I've been held backstage in a soundproof booth. Don't know what they're gonna be and I'm ready for to be surprised and to take your questions. Thanks for being here and good morning, Kalena. All right, hi. Nice to be on the air for the first time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm out in the open now. Okay, so our first question to start us off is Lucy Barrett from Twitter says, SCOTUS found the Texas abortion law to be urgent enough to immediately rule on it, sort of. The investigation of the January 6th attempted overthrow of our government is surely as important. Could the January 6th committee go to SCOTUS directly to enforce their subpoenas? Okay. Um, Thanks, Lucy. That's a fairly rich one. So let me start by saying here's what the court would say. The court would say we are passive when things come to us. We have to rule. And we had a motion come to us in the Texas case uh, from uh, challengers, people who were saying that they were being threatened and injured by the Texas statute. And they surely were. They were having not to perform abortions. These were by doctors and uh, all kinds of ways they could show injury. That will normally do it. But then we go to the dastardly element in the Texas statute, which is completely on purpose, unprecedented, as the Chief Justice said, and as a way to foil review, the Texas legislature wrote in a provision that said the only people who can enforce this are not our officials who would normally do it, not our law enforcement types, but anybody else in the entire world from the hardware store owner down uh, the street to any citizen at all anywhere in the world. Why does that matter? Because, at least to the court, they said, well, we don't really have a case yet because nobody has tried to enforce it. Nobody has gone for the $10,000 reward in the statute. So even though we have plaintiffs who are being hurt, we don't have a real case. Now, a lot of people, I among them, have noticed that this is pretty bogus or at least inconsistent with how they handle other cases. And I'll just say... As a fact, they surely could have taken the case. One easy thing they could have done would have been to take it. And if they took it, they would have to stay the statute because it's completely inconsistent with governing law, being Roe and Casey, which say you cannot prevent abortions before viability. And the Texas statute says around five weeks. So they surely could have done it. But what they would say as to why they did it when they did it, Lucy, is that, well, it came to us and so we had to act. Now, what about the January 6th committee? If something comes to them, yes, they will act. Normally, you got to start at the lowest rung in the federal court system, a district court. That is technically, though in a very complicated way, I won't waste your time in explaining what happened in the Texas case. And so the committee would have to move, and then it would have to go to the Court of of Appeals and then to the Supreme Court. And then there'd be questions about standing and the merits, and and in particular, whether not the the, um, substance of the law, 
but the standards for freezing the law while they decided had been met. And those are a special set of standards where you have to show you're really being hurt and you're probably going to win, those sorts of things. So the short answer is, but I guess it's too late for a short answer. My answer is, <laughs> yeah, the January 6th committee could do it. That doesn't mean they would uh, succeed. But what happened in the Texas case is the uh, challengers came all the way forward. One postscript is, after they were bounced by the Supreme Court, the United States, the Department of Justice, came in and said, look, this is inconsistent with federal law. We don't need anybody to try to enforce it. Right now, on the ground, people are being denied their federal constitutional rights. We are suing to vindicate those, and they are now up at the Supreme Court where they will move for a stay, and the Supreme Court won't be able to rely on this cockamamie enforcement scheme. They'll just have to go to the merits and deal with the case, including by ruling on the United States motion for a stay. All right. Told you it was a little complicated. <laughs> okay, sorry. It's very <laughs> comprehensive. Okay, so... Staying on theme, these questions are very on theme with, they're very consistent. PJ, I think it's Georgie from Twitter, asks, is there a process for revoking presidential pardons that were handed out to criminal accomplices by a criminal president? Remember how I said I tried to keep that last one short and then I didn't? Here's my answer, PJ. No. End of answer. It's a, so it's just a plenary power in the Constitution. There are limits to it. For example, you can't do it for unconstitutional reasons, say race or party or whatever. But once it's accorded, you could try to punish the president who did it politically, even potentially criminally. But a pardon is a pardon is a pardon. That person, it, it's as if uh, he or she were never convicted and nothing to be done about it. Great. So next we have Afrochunks AS2 from Twitter asks, as plaintiffs in the insurrection case slash coup attempt, are we also entitled to a speedy trial? Ah, great question. And I know there's a lot of consternation out there um, about the pace of the DOJ investigation. Let me answer the question first. No. Speedy trial rights, whether in the Constitution or by statute, belong to the defendant. They try to get at uh, preventing a specific harm, which is just hanging somebody out to dry indefinitely. It's, it's an emotional uh, burden, but also a practical one to be under cloud of indictment. And at some point, without too much tarrying, the government has to put up or shut up, do its best to, to convict or move on. Now, though, a word about the pace of the case against everyone, including the most prominent folks or the most visible, and those being Trump and his circle. This is the biggest case in DOJ history. There's some 1,500 defendants in the mix, of which 600 or so were charged. If it were a case of involving three or four or six people, the absolute standard playbook, maybe the only one, would be to try to work your way up towards the more guilty folks. That's in part because you're gathering evidence as you're working your way up the ladder and relatedly, and maybe even more importantly, you are hoping to get people to cooperate 
and it's only fair, uh, and these are DOJ guidelines, to get them to cooperate against more culpable folks. It wouldn't be, um, it wouldn't make sense from a justice perspective to get, I don't know, Steve Bannon to cooperate against a three percenter. You want to work your way up to the most guilty person. That's the ultimate goal. Um, so, the Department of Justice, unlike, well, this Department of Justice, unlike last one, and unlike the Congress, only talks when it's got something to say, and that means when it has charges to bring. But you can see just from what's happened to date that it is methodically working its way up from people who broke the law, but in a fairly minor way, say they trespassed, to people who broke it, but in a fairly serious way, say they, you know, really abused or used property in the Congress to more serious, especially ringleaders, the insurrectionists themselves, and anything they did, and then potentially, and you can be sure they will at least investigate potentially ringleaders, including in the government. Steve Bannon famously says on his podcast the day before, all hell's going to break loose tomorrow. Now, where does that come from? And does his uh, confidant, the, the then president of the United States, know it? No investigation could end without looking very closely at that question. That's not to say they would charge, even if they would find uh, evidence. That's a real issue for them to, um, that, that, that they will take when they come to it. But they will get there and they will want to get there with all the evidence in place and especially all the evidence about any interactions, conversations, and the like with these highest up people. And that will mean first getting to the second rung of the, uh, say, conspirators who did it on the ground. All right. So moving on, we have Lisa Combrink asks, would you comment on the strategy of the January 6 prosecutions? Are prosecutors working their way up the defendants based on serious of offense, evidence, convenience, or other factors? Great question to ask. I mean, I want to say all of the above, but I think I'll, I'll, everything else you mentioned is secondary. It is seriousness of the offense. And there's a reason for that. It's You could try to shoot straight to the top, but you wouldn't have... The evidence, let's say you have decent evidence that a pretty high up target, let's say, total hypothesis here, you know, Donald Trump Jr. Man, you don't want to go after Donald Trump Jr. unless you have all your cards uh, together. And who knows what's, what's out there. So you want methodically to work your way up a ladder of, of guilt because you are building cases sort of iteratively all the way up. And Department of Justice and FBI, you know, don't have magic wands. Most of what they get, there's two kinds of testimony. They get basically documents, super important, and presumably they have a lot of them already, including all the emails and the contents of, say, uh, phone records. But then testimony, what will people say? A lot of cases are built on the testimony of co-conspirators. It's a common playbook, and defense lawyers, of course, then say, well, he's just trying to save his skin, and DOJ says no, and you can believe him or her for this reason. 
but that's definitely what they do. And this is an all-hands-on-deck prosecution. I actually worked a little bit on the Oklahoma City case, and I mention that because it's the main um, precedent for Merrick Garland going about a case very thoroughly. And I can tell you, through resources from all over the department, and were ultra-methodical, he's perfectly aware that everyone is anxious to uh, know where they'll go or even to bring uh, charges, but he's also aware of two countervailing principles. The first is, as I say, building the full best case you can. You know, it's a debacle if you shoot the king and, and don't kill him, as they say, if they go forward and lose the case in a case like this. And also, a principle of, of fundamental fairness, again, not always adhered to in the previous administration, which is you do your talking in court. You're not supposed to be out there suggesting who might be guilty, who might not be. Only when you've tied it up with a ribbon and a bow and a grand jury typically has blessed it, will you then come forward and not even in a press conference, except as strictly necessary, but in court and say, here's what we've got your honor. Here are the allegations. And um, that all, that cuts against, especially with such a sprawling case, as I said, the biggest case in DOJ history, doing anything quick. That's all they can do. They know that every day people are impatient. Uh, they know which way the winds are blowing, but it's their job to disregard the winds. And under Merrick Garland, they will. All right. So moving on, Frank Siraguso says, is Donald Trump telling Steve Bannon and the other guys to ignore congressional subpoenas, obstruction of justice, and can he be charged? He's not the president anymore, so that's not there to protect him. That isn't there to uh, protect him. And by the way, I, you know, I think it's pretty clear, notwithstanding how it was whitewashed, that he committed what many prosecutors would have charged as obstruction of justice. I'd say this one doesn't quite cut it. Let's imagine for a moment, um, counterfactual, I know, but imagine for a moment it was a solid claim of executive uh, privilege with Bannon. For, for Trump to say, you know, fight for it, assert it, even though I'm not the president anymore, I don't think it'd be a crime. In fact, several former presidents have done exactly that, and their um, wishes have been respected uh, in the most recent sort of fight over this. Uh, the Obama Justice Department let George W. Bush's counsel into the room to kind of offer executive um, privilege. So from the standpoint of Trump, you know, plenty of nasty, down and dirty things, but wanting to say, I think I might have executive privilege here and I want you to act as I do. I, you know, the problem with it, the only thing that, that takes it apart from the normal thing is it's a very weak legal claim, but to make that legal obstruction, you know, intending to actually illegally, unlawfully, untowardly, um, interfere with a pending proceeding, I think probably doesn't make it. So, um, the, the show, and, and by the way, of course, he might. why is he doing it? Because he doesn't want him to testify. Why doesn't he want him to testify? Because he hasn't culpatory test. All that, of course, could also be true. But if he has even the slightest kind of good faith understanding 
of whether there is um, executive privilege, then then I think it uh, it means that he's not doing it in an in a legally obstructive way. And one more point on that, that I think ha- many have overlooked. It's um, strange, but the Supreme Court has held flatly that a former president can assert executive privilege over the wishes of the current president. I don't think when push comes to shove, and push may well come to shove in this very case, that the court could hold to that. There can, if, a, if the current president says no executive privilege, we only have one president at a time, only one president has sworn to take care to uphold the law, I think the claims of the former president would have to give way. But right now, the state of the law gives Trump at least a, you know, a little bit of an inroad to say, please think, consider my, well, he never says please, but to say, uh, consider my claims. And that also make, would make it harder to pin an obstruction of justice criminal charge on him. All right. Okay, this next one I really like. It's from Lori. She says, what you like them all, don't you, Kalena? What? Well, of course I like, like them all. all. But... These are these are the talking feds supporting gang this here. The... <laughs> They're all brilliant. That's right. I can't pick favorites. Our wonderful submissions. Lori says, what can I do to help save democracy? Getting increasingly panicky as Dems appear to be asleep at the wheel. I've been voting for 50 years now, every election. I write to Congress, but nobody reads the letters. I'm too old and lame to march or rally. I doubt that's true, but I doubt that's true too. Her words, yeah. not mine. I don't have a million dollars to buy a senator or two. What can I do to have an impact? You know, it's a great question, and I know the bromide that you're. If you were in a meeting with your Congress per, representative, well, get out there and vote. But I, I think the premise of the question is you know, one vote is just one vote. Is there anything more you can do? And I would say yes. So right now, to me, the linchpin of what you're talking about are the series of, frankly, disenfranchising statutes across the country in uh, heavily read states that just are not bona fide efforts to prevent election fraud, which is chimerical, really, the claims they're making, but really are an attempt by a slight minority to claw on and hold on to power. So I'm sure you have the energy and vigor and strength to lick stamps or place calls or whatever, and I would just say the one thing to do, and it, and it might well depend on where you live, it's, is to really band together with a local group that is targeted intensively on fighting back against these um, disenfranchising statutes. Maybe that means a local effort in a state where it's happening, or maybe it means supporting the national effort to um, pass a federal statute that would probably invalidate all these state statutes that that would preempt them. And, you know, there's not, even though there's a slim Democratic majority, it's all tied up with the filibuster and filibuster reform. So a big popular show of support for just those kinds of provisions. 
which are just good government provisions, you know, once they, you know, everybody ought to vote and then let the party with the most support win and go forward and represent. So what I would do is muster all the energy you have in a coordinated way with other people in your community to zero in specifically on these voting rights uh, bills, either the um, discriminatory, and, and I, I shouldn't, that's probably the wrong word. I don't think it's old-fashioned discrimination. The disenfranchising uh, ones in states or the enfranchising one at the federal level. Thanks for the question. All right. So Paula says, will the January 6th committee referrals to the DOJ for not obeying subpoenas happen as they are ignored or at the end of the committee's investigation? And she begs, please say as they define them. Sorry, <laughs> or at least <laughs> this is a really tough one and sad to say people do not yet fully appreciate how complicated it is. I actually, by the time this uh, broadcast might have an op-ed, probably will have an op-ed explaining it. So sure seems like they ought to, right? Bannon absolutely is defying, no doubt about it absolutely is doing it in a willful, contemptuous way, in a word, a criminal way, no doubt about it. Guilty as the day is long. And the law says when Congress refers uh, this a contempt, which they're going to vote out, that the U.S. attorney, and the, that means the person acting for the DOJ, must must bring the referral at least to the grand jury and let the grand jury decide. So that should be, that's it, right? Game, set, and match. No. Uh, several problems. The first is that the Department of Justice has always taken the, not just taken the position, but remember these OLC memos, like the one that said you can't indict a sitting president has written memos to make it DOJ policy that first, don't tell us what to do. We have prosecutorial discretion. We are interpreting this law to say we get to decide uh, with normal prosecutorial discretion whether to uh, take up on a referral. That's for starters. Second, two opinions that basically say if you are giving us a referral for contempt of Congress by a current or former or former executive branch official, we're not going to do it. Not that we will consider it. We consider it unconstitutional, a violation of the separation of powers for us to do it. And it's, it's therefore off the table. And indeed, there hasn't been such a referral. You can argue a little bit about one or two cases, but it, they really didn't get to the end since about 1960 before these opinions were written. Okay, that's the bad news. Now, remember the DOJ also here had has rules about executive privilege and decided to bend them because it was such an important, paramount um, factor of the public's right to know. And that applies here. So it certainly is within Merrick Garland's power and prerogative to say, you know, but there's no uh, executive privilege here. 
And um, moreover, uh, the, the cases and opinions that I've told you about came in cases where it was clear that executive privilege had been properly invoked. So it, there's certainly a, a needle to be threaded with the department saying, here, Bannon doesn't have a leg to stand on because he wasn't even in the executive branch at the time. There's not even a colorable claim of executive privilege. He's just some guy who's saying this. In fact, Trump hasn't even formally invoked it. Therefore, these opinions don't apply. Um, and we're just going to go ahead. So you can see where we are for a guy like Merrick Garland. On the one hand, DOJ policy and practice, the very thing he wants to reestablish, to right the ship, calm the waters, keep the department from being accused of politicization. On the other hand, the uh, you know an act that he has said was among the most heinous in U.S. history and which I assure you he is absolutely determined to fully redress. So my, my main answer here is we don't know yet what he's going to do and anybody who tells you otherwise doesn't know. And if you really, there's, there's a little bit of posturing going on by the members of the committee. They recognize that even as they say, we are submitting this and therefore um, uh, the DOJ has to do it. You can hear un, you know, underneath their breath and part of what they say, they're saying, pretty please. They understand that you know, the department might not do it. One final point, if the department does do it, what happens? He's referred for criminal conduct. How long does that take? A long time until he's actually guilty, probably longer than the life of the subpoena. But the hope is that now, unlike during the impeachments, when anybody could just take a free pass, have a civil case that if they lose, they just comply at the end, Bannon would be looking at something serious on the other side, namely a jail term of up to 12 months. And maybe that sobers him up to testify now or make some accommodation, and maybe it sobers up other witnesses to do the same. But if they actually have to go through the entire process, while it might change the dynamic going forward, it doesn't, unless Bannon blinks, actually put him in the chair with his right hand raised. There you have it. It is pretty complicated. <laughs> All right. Sally Cummings asks, what is Bannon's probable reason for defying the subpoena? Is he afraid of the investigation? Is he afraid of Trump? Or does he just want to toy with or exasperate the committee? All of the above. He does love yanking people's chain for sure. But no, look, we, we in January 5th, as I said, he says, hell's going to break loose. All hell's going to break loose tomorrow. How does he know that? What name ever give details of every single conversation he had with the president? I think he the reason is he doesn't want the information out. That's the main reason people defy uh, subpoenas. And that's, I think, what's happening here. All right. That one was short and sweet. <laughs> <laughs> I try sometimes. <laughs> Just a couple more. Martina Ladd asks, says, my question is about treason. Do you know if anyone in the recent past has been charged with it? If not, why not? This one is 
multi-pronged. So I'll let you answer that first and then I'll yeah. ask the next part. So I do know. And the answer is no. This is another one that people don't generally understand. So treason. In the in in Britain, you know, in the colonial period before we came over, treason, which is punishable by death, was bandied about like crazy. You could be um, arrested and convicted for treason, a capital offense, for counterfeiting, for committing adultery with the king's wife, for all, you know, a lot of different stuff. And so the framers wrote into the Constitution, there's no other crime like this, that treason must be narrowly defined and fastidiously proven. There's a clause in the Constitution that says treason shall consist only in the, basically, the aiding uh, of uh, of an enemy in wartime. I mean, we need to have an enemy. And by enemy, we don't mean, you know, a bad customer whom we have tension with, like China or Iran. We mean, basically, we are at war with these guys, and you are giving them aid and comfort or giving them secrets, uh, etc. Moreover, the framers also put into the Constitution a requirement that you need two witnesses to prove it. So, all the kinds of things that people say it's treasonous, I think it is treasonous in the common parlance, meaning treasonous in the sense of kind of betraying national values. But that's not treasonous under the federal criminal code, in part because of these constitutional limitations. That might be, for example, insurrection uh, or criminal conspiracy, but it's not treason. And to get to the other part of your question, that's reflected in the rarity uh, with which the crime is charged. There have been something like 30 or 40 in the entire history of the country, a dozen convictions and zero charges even um, uh, since the last one was World War II. And that didn't even go to uh, charge one way or another. It was uh, someone who allegedly gave Al-Qaeda aid and comfort, and he, an American, it has to be an American, again, you can't, if you're a Russian giving aid and comfort to, or if you're an Al-Qaeda person giving aid and comfort, that's not treason, you have to be an American. Um, and uh, he was actually killed by a drone strike separately, which we do, uh, you know, in those, that's a whole nother um, uh, bramble bush of legal um, issues. But uh, so net, we never went to trial. Basically, no convictions since back in World War II time. Incredibly rare um, charge to bring, incredibly serious and incredibly demanding by the terms of the Constitution itself. Yeah. Well, then that's I guess I question. can kind of predict what the answer is going to be to the <laughs> next parts of this question but same person it's still martina okay all right she kind of asked for a deep dive on what treason is and then she also okay. has examples and you know is okay. this treason is it's not treason so if russia was essentially attacking our country with misinformation in order to weaken it doesn't supplying them with the critical data to further that mission constitute treason or giving aid and comfort to an enemy the info came from the trump campaign after all and the second one is also, we saw the coup he refused to stop, also giving aid to a domestic en enemy in plain sight. Is that not sufficient evidence of treason or at least sedition? It was premeditated, planned, and documented in real time. Assuming Garland is building a case around this event, 
why must we waste time collecting specifics when we already have a full enough picture? Are we letting great be the enemy of good and therefore risking freedom itself? Wow, Martina, great question. <laughs> I think you should consider applying for a, a, a federal prosecutor uh, uh, job. Uh, you've, you've got the fire and the, uh, the principal. Um, now, you slipped in a couple thi- words that I think make a difference. One was essentially up front when you were talking about aid and comfort, and one was sedition. So let's zero in again on treason. I'll, I'll just read you Article 3, Section 3, Clause 1. Treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them. So are you levying war? I don't think giving uh, uh, information to Russia would count as levying war against the United States or in adhering to their enemies, capital E, giving them aid and comfort. And that has been interpreted narrowly. Enemy doesn't mean as, you know, if it did, obviously Russia would qualify enemy, as we talk in common parlance. People who wish us ill are trying to undermine us in the world, etc. Essentially, it gets a little bit murky because of the different ways you can have military engagement in the absence of a declaration of war, but it's basically, you know, a bad uh, actor, including probably a non-state actor like Al-Qaeda that we are fighting. Okay, so that's that's why I don't think there's treason here. But you did say sedition. And look, the things you're talking about um, that that do have, you know, that's basically inciting people to, to um, rebel. And there's insurrection, uh, which is really on the table. There's conspiracy to commit insurrection. I think it's 2240. On the table, very serious, 20-year minimum penalties. So, you know, it's a it's a serious matter to charge the right charge under the federal code. You get it wrong and you're kicked out of court and you ought to be. The, so the short answer to your question, for, there's a two-part thing. First, we'd have to narrow it quite a bit, throw treason out, be very careful about the elements of each crime. Now we have, say, conspiracy to commit insurrection, very serious, and would we bring that against, um, say, Trump or some of the January 6th folks? I think you'll find that charge considered. A lot of reasons, and maybe we'll get to these in other uh, questions, uh, not to go forward with them. And, and on the speed question, why haven't they jumped the line and brought them already? You know, we talked about that with, with some other supporters' um, questions. So, you know, got to take seriously what the actual provable charges would be, and then all kinds of factors that go into the exercise of prosecutorial discretion. Right. And... Our last few questions were very similar, so I just picked one that kind of sums it up really well. A lot of people had this question, and I know a lot of a lot of people everywhere have this question right now. Heidi Sun says, hey, Talking Feds, one really quick question for you guys. When will Trump be charged? If I did 10% of his crimes, I would already be in jail. So how is he walking around free? Hey, Heidi. Great question, but not a quick question, (laughs) or at least it's a quick question, but not a quick answer. First, you have to give, you know, only criminal charges are brought by a sovereign. 
So even though we have the vantage point of all the things he's done to the country, you know, the Fulton County prosecutor has the vantage point of what he did to Fulton in Fulton County that's a crime, the New York DA likewise, the Department of Justice likewise. So we, you know, we got to divide and uh, conquer. Man, there is a lot to be said here. Um, and let me end with the DOJ, because I think that goes to the issues you're raising the most. So I'll just say, as to um, the DA in, in New York, Cyrus Vance Jr., he's taken a very hard shot at getting, we've talked about going up the ladder. He was to the second rung, right? Alan uh, Weisselberg, the CF, longtime CFO, loyal keeper of secrets for the Trump family dating back to the father. You got to think if Trump's committed fat financial crimes, which you got to think he has. Not, I hasten to add in a beyond a reasonable doubt, I'll prove it way, but just it sure seems consistent. He would have it, but they applied all the pressure they had on him. Doesn't look like he's uh, knuckling under, so it doesn't look like they have a case. And we're going to find that out pretty soon, I think, because the DA says he's leaving office by the end of December. So there, I just think the evidence in provable, usable, in-court form is just not developed yet. Fulton County, very interesting case. So a really discreet crime that goes to uh, something that we all heard about at the time, the attempt basically to squeeze and shake down the Georgia Secretary of State. Remember the call, Brad Raffensperger, he had the foresight to record it. And there's, you know, it might be a bit of a push where the, where Trump would say, I'm just being, you know, something I'm allowed to be as president. But I think you could really see how that states crimes under Georgia law. And you have a single uh, DA who might be willing to basically roll the dice on her career as against a lot of... Um, you know, some popular opposition, perhaps, and, and but certainly, you know, big legal guns. That, I think, is the biggest peril for him. But why not the United States? Why not, you know, we know, notwithstanding the spin by, say, Bill Barr at the time, that there was a obstruction, you know, by Barr, probably even what we were calling collusion, but would be conspiracy. He's not a sitting president anymore. It's within the statute of limitations. What's going on? And, you know, I know this will be an unsatisfactory answer to many people, but um, look, there. you can imagine the point of view that says all of that, There, you know, all of that is largely plays out in the political sphere. It did play out in the political sphere. He was rejected at the ballot box. There's reasons not to take the country through the turmoil uh, of, you know, stepping on the hornet's nest and having that be not just a uh, distraction, but a deepening of the t polarization that so infects and, and harms our political discourse now, it just means a real um, continuation of what I think kind of sickens us sort of literally uh, in the body politic. That's a very unusual kind of prosecutorial discretion, but you can see it. That's essentially what Gerald Ford was saying at the time, and, and people were up in arms. It may, in fact, have been corrupt. It's not clear yet whether Nixon put the, you know, insisted on it. But we also see in the, you know, 
prism of time that, you know, maybe that was the right thing for social health altogether. I'll add one thing, not clear how much this should factor in, but from Biden's point of view, and he's the, you know, Merrick Garland serves the administration, he's got to be praying it doesn't happen because goodbye to all his other domestic priorities. Goodbye to the spending bill. Goodbye to all the things he wants to do in voting rights, climate change, and the like, because you'll have sort of the permanent fury and division and, and uh, complete schism that you had during impeachment. So he would hope that all that is buried. Big, big, big asterisk. Even if that's your point of view, still, you have to strongly investigate crimes that came after. So if you take that to be the view, we have to basically leave it buried and gone, the things Mueller investigated, the things he was impeached for, fine. But if you find a crime in his conduct in January 6th or since then, you know, then I think the argument for going forward is much, much stronger. Because what I've essentially stated to date is that you could fairly say that the political system has otherwise dealt with, you know, not in a way that a lot of people see, not in the most serious way with, you know, Trump in a jumpsuit and his hair uh, unkempt, but, uh, uh, you know, in a serious way, it has reached a kind of verdict. Um, we've been doing books lately, and I talked to Adam Schiff yesterday, and he he basically said that he thought he that in losing, they won the impeachment trial because the national verdict was that Trump was guilty. You could see the sort of nation as a whole, the national government reaching that kind of judgment and wanting to steer away from the certain turmoil, damage, and distraction of a Trump prosecution, at least for conduct that was already at issue in either impeachment or the Mueller prosecution. Huh, so there you have it. I hope that also addresses the, the many other questions and might not be satisfactory, but I want to hope, hopefully it explains at least the nuances that responsible good faith people in power now are actually considering. Yeah. Well, that's all great. right. Kalina, have I, have I discharged my, my duties? <laughs> Yes, I believe that is pretty much everything that we wanted to get through today, and we are right on time. Great. I want to thank everybody who's interested enough to, to write in questions. We hope to do more of these, maybe once a month. It's a pleasure to have a kind of direct communication with um, supporters. Thank you for being supporters, but also for having the um, you know interest and initiative to write in questions. You know, do it again. I'll answer them again. Yes. Thanks a lot.